You're listening to Muslim Girls Fence, Reimagining Care, a series exploring community and self-care in light of structural racism and inequalities we face. In this series, we interview participants and coaches from Muslim Girls Fence, academics, activists and artists about their experiences over the past year and through all the lockdowns. We find out what care means to them, whether they feel cared for, what some of the barriers are to accessing healthy spaces and what they imagine a future to look like where we are all looked after and centred. We hope to show that care and well-being is dependent on so much more than candles and bubble baths, although that does help. As Audrey Lord said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, an act of political warfare. In our final episode of Reimagining Care, we speak to poet and educator Sohema Manzur Khan, coach Mercedes and participants from Muslim Girls Fence. We imagine and share our hopes for the future, what we'd like to see policymakers and decision makers do to make changes, and why it's so important to imagine and push for these changes and programs that are created to serve communities. Hi, uh, my name is Avon Shart, and I am a co-fencing coach with the Muslim Girls Fence Project. I am also currently doing a PhD at the University of Oxford studying lithium sulfur batteries. And I am a uh, fencer on the British women's foil team. The kind of care that I would like to see from uh, decision makers and leaders, uh, policy makers, um, I, th I think it would be, <laughs> it seems like a small ask, but I, I would like them to sort of put people first and to me, I think from policymakers and decision makers, leaders, what I would really like to see from, from them in terms of creating um, a caring space is just putting people first above pretty much, pretty much all else, like pri prioritizing the lives of those they're affecting over all those other pressures. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of things I probably don't understand, but just having that mindset that whatever whatever decisions they have to make to put put people first, put their well-being first, and trying to make sure that in whatever policies they enact, they are as inclusive and affect people in a positive way and not in a negative way. My name is Mercedes Baptiste Halliday. Um, I'm currently a student at UCL. I'm studying archaeology and anthropology. Um, I'm really interested in filmmaking um, and documentary filmmaking. Um, I'm also a fencing coach and a fencer, and I've been coaching on the Muslim Girls Fence Project for a couple of years now. And it was actually my first experience of coaching. Um, so it's got a special place in my heart. I think the changes that I would like to see in terms of care is just an emphasis of sport in state schools. Like I came from a school where like sport was not important at all. Like I went to a girls school, so I'm sure like, you know, being a girl has a lot to do with that as well. But um, we had like this amazing like sports hall and dance, dance hall and like we had a football pitch as well. But even though we had these facilities, like there was no emphasis on sport at all. Um, and I think it's a real shame because in a lot of private schools, there is that emphasis. And I think 
sport and exercise is important for like mental health and like just physical health and kids need to have that experience at school and they deserve that experience um but also like the diversity of having different sports as well um I think there needs to be more more funding and more possibilities for sports such as fencing or archery or rowing to be accessible in state schools because that is a lot of the time like that is potentially like the future of the sport and that's how you keep the sport alive by constantly changing and diversifying it. I just feel like sports like fundamentally should be accessible to everyone like that's a very very deep belief of mine and I think anyone has the capacity to exceed in fencing um, and I think parameters need to be made or things need to be made to like enable more accessibility to it um, and projects like Muslim Girls Fence are definitely helping and individual clubs are definitely helping but um, I do think more needs to be done yeah. Hi everybody, thank you for joining us for another episode and today we are joined by Suhaima Mansur Khan. Thank you so much for joining us and do you want to just introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, lovely to be here. Um, my name is Suhaima, I am a poet, a writer and an educator. Um, I have a poetry collection called Postcolonial Banter and I lead poetry workshops and enjoy that kind of thing. <laughs> Amazing. And I think you're really perfect to speak to for this podcast series because you, I feel like you've experienced the project from every angle possible. You've been the artist we brought in to lead poetry workshops with um, students and then you joined us as a project manager. So you were part of the team. And yeah, I feel like you you really know the project inside out and you've added so much to to, to everything well I love so, the project so no I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that you feel that way um so we usually start by asking everyone the same question which is what does caring for yourself mean to you and what does caring for community mean to you I think they're really really important questions and I don't feel like I you know what's that saying where you you don't practice what you preach I think this is one of the problems with care is that I'm, I can sort of theoretically tell you about it, but then to actually live it in my own life seem, seems really difficult. But I guess community care and personal care, I think are really interrelated. Um, I think we cannot be well as communities if we're not well as individuals. And so care, I suppose, you know, in, in the word itself, it has like the physical aspect to it. Like, are you physically well? Are you physically, uh, you know, able to access the things that you need, the resources that you need? Um, and when you're caring for yourself, I suppose that's it can never just be it can never be an individual thing because you need to have access. You know, the very the very fact of needing makes you an interdependent being. You need other people. You need um, other kind of whatever it is resources. And so I think, yeah, I think there's no way to disentangle those two things. Like if we, if I think when I think of care, I think about also feeling safe. So feeling well, feeling safe. Um, and safety is definitely like about the world that I live in and, and the society that I'm in and you know 
how can somebody feel safe if when they leave their house, there are all these different dynamics at play? Um, so I guess I'm avoiding the question, <laughs> what, does, what does it mean to care for myself? But I think it means like, really, I suppose, treating myself I think the reason it's difficult is that it would mean treating myself so differently to the way that the world has told me to be used to be treated. Um, and so I've been, been socialized as a Muslim woman in the world to believe that, you know, it's very normal to never have access to the things that you need, to never really be able to let your guard down, to never really feel, um, you know, unthreatened or completely safe. And so I think to, then get to, to like actually tell yourself you deserve those things which I think maybe is something to do with care it can be really difficult but I think that's why the communal element is really important but I don't know it's tricky I don't I don't feel like I have a good answer to that no that's great I think in some of your work you also talk a lot about the role of Muslim women in, in society in particular and this kind of this navigating being on one side hyper visible everywhere you go and on the on the other end also invisible every time you try and speak and um can you talk a little bit more about kind of navigating this and why having spaces that are free of those perceptions what this can what this feels like for you and maybe for the women you've worked with yeah I think okay so I mean Muslim women <laughs> it's this strange situation is it where everybody we're, we're seeing it everywhere you know any headline any newspaper every tv show every documentary there's a muslim woman you know usually wearing a hijab or niqab who's just in the background somewhere or in a picture and i think that like saturation of the image of muslim women the you know we're part of conversations about covid rates we're part of conversations about unemployment terrorism integration multiculturalism like everything and at the same time you know if i asked you when's the last time you heard a muslim woman actually speaking being given the microphone to speak I mean I, I can't remember I, I have I, I haven't and so I think there's a real irony and and what that does is it means that when you for me like when I go into the public space I often say that it feels like having like comic bubbles come up pop up around me and it's like before anybody can actually see me or speak to me all they see is all these connotations all these assumptions you know bubbles as terrorist bubbles as oppressed bubbles as jihadi bride bubbles as submissive wife like all these different things and imagine that as well when you're seven years old eight years old nine years you know this is from childhood that girls face this as well not just women and what that does then to you psychologically as soon as i'm in a public space um you know, I feel, and this, I'm saying this as somebody who I, I spend a lot of my time speaking publicly. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in what I think about things, but I feel so silenced by that. I feel so unsafe. I feel that I can't be who I really want to be in, in public space because I'm always thinking about other people's perceptions. How, how will it look if I put my bag down here on the train? Or how will it look if I ask this question? Or how will it look if I suddenly, you know, move and leave uh, my seat or whatever it is? So there's, there's that. And then it's like you're hyper visible. At the same time, though, you're not seen as you. So Sahima is never seen anywhere. Like she just does not exist. I'm completely invisible. And it means that there's all these weird sort of um, I don't know, this sort of almost fetishization of Muslim women, you know, it's like a Muslim woman who can box, oh my god, how's she doing it? And it's just like, we can't, nothing can ever just be banal and like, oh, I, I 
you know, I just have hobbies. I'm just a human being with hobbies. I have interests. It's always like a special, you know, superpower. And I think that that dichotomy as well is part of, you know, this hyper-visible and invisible, but there's also this idea of like the, the super Muslim woman. And then she sort of seems to be uh, the, the in opposition to this shy, quiet Muslim woman who's just oppressed by her brothers and her dad and they don't let her do anything, which, you know, where is that woman? This is just a, it's just a construct. It's a Muslim woman who we've been told exists. And the irony is in all of that, in all this concern for Muslim women, this obsession about, you know, they're being oppressed, they're being forced into marriages, forced to wear hijabs, forced to have their genitals mutilated, like all these different things. If those concerns were genuine, you know, why is there no care for Muslim women? Why, we, why do we never hear from Muslim women? Why are the conversations never centering Muslim women? Instead, they're, they're punishing us. Instead, it's like, you know, you're being forced to do something. Therefore, we're going to criminalize your communities more. Therefore, we're going to have more police raiding your homes. Therefore, we're going to get your teachers, your doctors, your nurses, your librarians to all be looking out for, for signs of radicalization in you, wherever you are, because, you know, we're so worried about you. But that's like, that's not how you show concern for people. And, and, and that means that, you know, if you're a Muslim woman or you're a Muslim girl, where can you actually imagine if you actually are facing any of those things that, that, that people profess to be concerned about? I mean, who, what are you supposed to do? You go tell your teacher, straight, straight you go to prevent referral, straight you go to counterterrorism, home office, you know, straight you go to, I don't know, deportation. It's like, there's not even space to think about what would it mean for Muslim women to actually be approached with care from public institutions? Um, there's a really good essay in um, uh, a book that's coming out called Cut From The Same Cloth. And uh, of the, one of the woman, I think she's called Sophie Walker, she talks about, she wears niqab and she talks about the fact that when she first went to get therapy, one of the big, one of the big reasons that she went was that she doesn't feel safe in public because of her niqab and she's often really hypervigilant and worried about people attacking her. And she has had a lot of people attacking her verbally and, and physically. And one of the first things that her white female therapist on the NHS says to her is, I think, because she expresses, you know, this is one of my, my big kind of issues is this, this fear and this anxiety I have. And so the therapist says, okay, well, maybe one of the measures of success of our therapy can be whether you feel comfortable to not wear your niqab anymore. And it's just like, you can't, you can't, you can't approach the person as the problem. And, and this is what happens when you're a Muslim woman is that you're seen as both the victim and the perpetrator of the violence against you. So ultimately everyone's trying to free you from yourself you, and, and that and your freedom is bound up with just you know the ideal Muslim woman is one who's not Muslim right it's like you've been truly freed once you're not and that's why we love these women like Ayan Hirsi Ali these ex-Muslim um figures who kind of have built their lucrative careers off of not being Muslim anymore um but yeah so the impact I think and the and you know it's, it's very evident that when you're in a space with just Muslim women none of that none of that baggage has to come because everybody there knows you're an individual because they're individuals and they're humans and they know you have flaws and contradictions um so it's sort of yeah it's very unsurprising to me that that those spaces mean so much to people that was really amazing it also kind of just reminds me on that um this idea that like all these bigger structures of racism and capitalism um they're just there to keep us busy in the distractions and um that's something like we also encounter within the sports sector a lot is when um they look at like the statistics of inequalities between who accesses sports or physical activity services and who is seen as active there's um you know huge gaps between um white populations and 
um, in particular South Asian women, um, but also other minorities and kind of research around that often just talks about, well, white women know how to prioritize me time and brown women need to learn how to do me time. And it's kind of just erasing all this other stuff that people are dealing with, but it's, um, yeah, maybe also kind of evading accountability for, um, you know, what spaces are accessible and what spaces are there for us. Um, and yeah, you, you've kind of come across a little bit of that as well when when you were working with us, but I think it kind of applies to almost every sector, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think well, one of the things that I think is part of that is that in whatever context Muslims and Muslim women in particular are being talked about, so whether it's that they're not doing enough sport or I don't know what it is, they're not employed enough, uh, the, the overwhelming analysis that is always given is that it's because of their culture, it's because of their religion or their ideology, and, and all those things kind of mean the same thing in, in public mind, right? So their culture holds them back, their men hold them back, and you know this narrative goes as far back as the 1800s. This is the same thing that, you know, oh, the reason that societies that Britain is colonizing and ravishing the industries of are held back is because of the status of the women, right? So they always had this cultural explanation for things. And I think when you, if we didn't have that, I completely agree, you know, what you threaten to do is expose the fact that there are socioeconomic and political reasons that people do things and that people are responding to the conditions that they find themselves in. So the reason that I don't engage in tons of sport could vary from the fact that it's expensive to join a gym I don't have the money to join a gym or I decide that actually if I do have the money it's better spent on something else that the state doesn't cover because I don't have my disability benefits or my housing benefits are cut or because I'm not I don't get the living wage or because I do get the living wage but I have five children who are all at home because of COVID and you know so there's like all these concepts and these reasons okay but like why don't you go play tennis at the the local open course okay I mean have you tried being a visibly Muslim woman going into a context like that where there's all these professional white you know white people wearing this like like for gear and they all seem to know what they're doing I think isn't that evidence that shows you know, most women feel more comfortable in women only sports uh, spaces um, and there's so many ways that women are looked at in general right I mean one of my friends recently was just saying that she hates jogging she used to love jogging she hates it she's a white woman she hates it because you know she's just always being leered at she's always being looked at catcalled um, for Muslim women you know being publicly visible as a Muslim woman running or whatever it is you want to do there's there's all the added kind of racial ways that you're looked at as well so I think absolutely if we had to hold if we had to kind of hold to account the actual processes that, that make people vulnerable or make people or that exclude people I suppose is the way of putting it um yeah we would we would have to hold the government to account we'd have to hold you know economic systems to account um and also we'd have to start asking questions that I think require more imagination because people don't make those connections that maybe the reason uh, somebody's not engaging in sport is linked to the fact that their rent is extortionate so you kind of touched on this a little bit already but um if you could think of what funders or people who organize or put on these projects services for different communities what would you kind of urge people to keep in mind or what what would be a different way of organizing or, or doing things that are maybe a bit less focused on meeting certain objectives mm. and more focused on how to provide care for each other as part of 
yeah. a sports project or a creative project. Well, I guess it's really obvious, and I know it's something that we've often talked about in the past, but just you know, beginning by asking people what they actually need and want. And I think the likelihood is that Muslim women or people, whoever marginalized communities you're supporting, already have a very strong sense of what they want and need. Um, and the likelihood is that they don't have the funds for it. And you as a funder come in and say, oh, here's this project that will really help you. That has nothing to do with the kind of needs or desires of the people there. Um, it's really frustrating. And it it actively takes away from the, you know, you're talking about care, but it's actually undermining the requirements that people have for the care that they need. And so I think there's that starting um with kind of what, what people say that they need and believing that they need it as well not sort of I think sometimes there's this very condescending idea that oh they don't really know what's best for them right like we know what's best and actually this is what's most convenient and this place is best and, you know we, we've had so many experiences that no actually using a sports hall is not the best place to use use a completely different venue where people are already going no actually that timing that you assume is a great timing is not a great timing for these people for xyz reason um and so i think approaching every project as a really serious yeah as not just an objective to be met but as a really serious um engagement um and i think also that you know it would be really revolutionary i think to to have a situation where the funds funds are just made available for people to do the things that they need and also not even just to do them but I think sometimes you know I wonder if we could reach a stage where it's like you're able to fund people to actually just have what they need materially financially to do what they then want to do right so like uh, where you know whether it's joining a gym whether it's like buying a bike whether it's whatever whatever it is whatever that looks like um but I don't know if we're there I think funders often have a very like criteria driven approach to these things yeah that also resonates with a lot of what our what other people have said in the interviews but also our coaches uh, one of our coaches main thing she was saying was um yeah like if funders could just like come and see what's happening in our local community maybe it would be easier to to get funding and to keep it going and not have to like constantly jump through hoops to to keep things running for people so maybe if we think a little bit about kind of actually reimagining what these things could look like what these projects could look like maybe we can start by thinking about like what would you like to see made more available on a wider scale oh I think that's a really hard question because I think we're at the stage where actually just more is not going to alleviate a lot of the issues that we have because okay let's say the government provides more social funding, more funding for public um, resources. If that funding is all bound up within the counter extremism strategy, that funding comes with a responsibility on the public sector to you know, spy on Muslim people, to treat them as suspects and problems and not as, as uh, people who deserve care, right? As potential criminals. So I think for when we're in this situation already where the public sector, most of the civic sector, most of the arts, are actually deeply steeped in this policing apparatus, which I can go more into in a second if we want to, but like through counter extremism, through prevent, then actually just more of that is not what we want. And so I, I think when, when we think about what is it that kind of society needs, the first step to any sort of care is to remove all the harm. So we have to actually be able to imagine, you know, healthcare services, educational services, um, well-being services that are not 
uh, conscripted by the government to police people. So always be looking out for these signs of radicalization, but also to, to not be, you know, immigration enforcement as well, to not be the hostile environment, not be checking passports and be, become, because, you know, because that stops so many people being able to access. And lots of these people are Muslim, lots of immigrants, undocumented people, um, because we know Muslims are disproportionately displaced around the world. All of that is connected to how we can access services here. And you can't if those things exist. Um, so I think in the first place, it's like about removing the harm. There's no point introducing, you know, um, fully affordable new housing like that would be great that's brilliant but introducing all of that and still not changing the conditions that when people leave their houses you know young black boys are going to be stopped and searched and assumed to be involved in knife crime and gang violence and um th there's these you know i think it really becomes a case of just like more is not the solution and i think sometimes particularly in the kind of charity and ngo sector there's actually a really deliberate reduction or kind of reducing of the problem to that that if we just have more money and we provide more services it's better but actually when you do that you're covering that problem number one but you're also you're just sustaining you're sustaining the conditions that allow that thing to continue so it's like you know after so many decades we shouldn't be in the place where we still require charity right but we do because charity sustains the capitalist system which allows people to be exploited and other people to not so to answer that question in a long-winded way what I would like to see more of is services that do not police, services that do not um, enact harm, services that cannot be a channel to the home office, to the border enforcement, to prison, to any sort of like um, criminalizing intervention in your life. So you don't have to worry that if I go, you know, to the doctors, social workers might come to my house and, and remove my children because I, you know, I'm Muslim or you know, even just very obvious racial disparities, you know, people who are black, just, just knowing they're not going, that their, their illnesses will not be treat, treated seriously. We know that amongst Asian women, there's this idea of the BB syndrome that, you know, you'll just be taken to be like, oh, this complaining Asian woman, classic, you're not really in pain. As long as we think that the threshold of pain for black people is, is much higher, you know, so all of that just means it's to, yeah, to be frank, you know, even if we had this socialist state, if it's a socialist state under the conditions of white supremacy, what's the point? Because who's that? Who is that helping? So yeah, for me, it's like, yeah, more, but more only of things that are completely, genuinely free and accessible to the majority of people. Not to the majority of people, to everybody. To every, to, to everybody should be able to feel safe. And I think, yeah, for as long as there are caveats on that, then. I don't know if it's worth if it's worth doing there's also like a lot of the work we've done together but also I think your work on its own and, and what we do is uh, around trying to reimagine different ways of living or different types of societies and um but it's extremely hard to actually do that and like can you can you reimagine a future that is free of Islamophobia, racism and patriarchy? Do you, like, can you imagine what that would look like or feel like? And why is it so hard to actually picture it? Yeah, so I think that's a brilliant question. And I think uh, many things. <laughs> One thing is that the re it's, it is very deliberate that we cannot imagine life beyond these 
structures of violence, right? Part of the impact and part of the influence of violence is to make us believe this is the only way things cannot change. Because how disempowering is that, right? To think no matter what I do, nothing will change. It's, it's, you know, it means we become completely non-threatening. Um, but the second thing is that I think we often think that like we have to imagine this blueprint. So we have to know exactly how it's gonna look this world post racism this world that's been in construction for 500 years that we're supposed to just come up with some, you know, little, I don't know, bullet point plan of like how we're gonna get there. And the reality is that it is going to be unimagined. It has to be unimaginable because all that we can imagine is, is based on what we've been socialized into. So in a way, we, I think we have to fully embrace the idea that what we're trying to build is something that we shouldn't yet know what it looks like. And all we have to know is certain things like we've just talked about that, it ha okay, what's, what's it gonna take for you to feel safe, Arla? What's gonna take for you to feel safe? What's it gonna be every single person? And let's try to, let's try and take on board all those things. And as that journey goes on, we will also change and our capacities to think differently will change. And I think that can, people think that that's overwhelming but actually it's much more overwhelming to kind of accept that the way things are now, the only way they can ever be. And the other thing that I kind of makes me believe very strongly that we definitely can have something else is that the way things are now in, in, in the kind of broader scope and view of history are very recent and very recently made. They're not just, you know, people talk about things like this is the way things have always been. If we look at white supremacy itself, white supremacy is not the way the world has always been. It's very specific historical processes that occurred in the last 500, 400 years through capitalism, through colonialism that built the world as it is today. So if you genuinely don't think that things can be another way, I mean, it's just factually incorrect. Like things have been another way and things can be. And so I think the, the question for us is not just, you know, I think Mariam Carver writes brilliantly about this in her new book, um, We Do This Till We Free Us. She says the question is not, um, what do we have and how can we improve it? But I'm, I'm misphrasing her because I can't actually remember her exact words, but she says something along the lines of the question that we should be asking instead is, you know, what do we need? What, how, how do we start today with what we want? Um, and I think that's really important because we don't have to hold on to the institutions that exist. We don't have to think, how do we make government better? How do we improve democracy? You know, it is possible to just say, this system's awful. Let's have a different system altogether. You know, the ideal system, what would it be for you? What would it be for me? I think part of the problem is that we, we just don't have the time due to capitalism, as you said, to play and to be creative. And really what's required there is, is play. And it is that kind of, that time and the resources to do that thinking. And sadly the time and the resources are in the hands of the people who own the means of communication, the means of production, and you know the people who have the power and don't want things to change. So I think we sort of have to have, yeah, that radical sense of hope that people like Angela Davis talk about and, and to, practice that really actively and really remind each other that it is possible. And one more thing, actually, the other reason I know it's possible is because we do it every day in really small ways. We amongst ourselves, particularly as people of color and communities of color and women of color, we, all, we are always imagining different ways of being because as soon as I'm in a room with you, we're in a room with other Muslim women, we're already imagining you know, the, whether it's just the next hour or the next few hours that I'm not, I'm not going to live under the confines of white supremacy. I'm not going to live just through the gaze of suspicion. And that, you know, the fact that we can do that amongst ourselves, even for a moment, even for a couple of minutes, it's just, I think it's just proof and a reminder that it's very possible when you remove those situations and those forces that are, are causing us harm. 
So yeah, I'm a big proponent and I think we, we just have to remember, I think another thing Mariam Kaba says is that, yes, it can be overwhelming, but what that means is that there's, you know, endless places to begin. There's, there's you know, everywhere is an opportunity to begin imagining anew, whatever your station in the world, whatever your role is in the world, you too are part of that work. And I think that's, that's exciting and we can embrace that. Yeah, I think I, I really like the notion of like, we don't have to know exactly what it looks like, because that is kind of how my brain especially like wants to work is like well like, like, I'm gonna want to have a detailed spreadsheet about <laughs> how to overcome racism and the patriarchy and then we can have a step-by-step to-do list <laughs> but completely and I think in a way that that that, te- that fear that terror of like what because <laughs> I have that as well is actually a reminder as well that you know lots of our own ways of thinking are steeped in these very like capitalist procedural linear ways of thinking and we too will have to change we really will on how we think and so it's I know if you told me to invent that blueprint today I would reproduce all of these problematic violences around me because they're all I know I don't know how to think without them so you know I think it also resolves that a bit to say okay let's just let's just go see where we get to so one quote we've come across is by Kamra Sadia Hakim, which says, um, I always wonder what if care is the work? What if caring for ourselves is the revolution? Meaning what would happen if we divested from white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy and invested our energy in equitizing the care we are able to provide to one another? Do you have any kind of reflections on, on that quote or that idea of centering care and care for each other as as the radical work that we should be doing yeah I mean I think that's such a powerful idea um and it's I think there's an honesty to it as well that we often I think insincerely try to cover up so I think we try to cover up for the fact that we need care as much as we do so we have this idea that we're striving for this one event that will change everything um and the reality is, you know, as the famous saying goes, that revolution is not a one-time event, you know, that it's something that, that we do every day, that we have to live it and that we are constantly changing. But I think this idea that maybe maybe caring for ourselves is the revolution, it really resonates with me, actually, I think, in this time of the pandemic, because, you know, if you're burnt out and you're exhausted and you're depleted, but how you know how are you serving anybody you're not able to serve yourself you're not able to serve your community you're not able to you know do any of these kind of whether it's getting a seat at the table or even finding the seat you know you can't you're just you're you're bereft of any power so I think imagine I mean yeah the question I suppose I would pose back to that quote is yeah imagine if everybody was truly able to care for themselves how would that change the ways that we move through the world how would that change the ways that we approach one another like in a way that resolves so many of the things that we're told at the moment that you know police solve this problem prisons solve this problem actually so many of those problems would be better resolved through people having the means to care for themselves so I think that's a really important idea and I think it probably also requires us to think about care more broadly than we do and I think obviously care is such a gendered term as well like care is seen as this thing that only women should do and that women do disproportionately do um whether that's caring for children caring for each other caring for elderly people um whether that's institutionally or within families but actually i think there's also a process that goes on there 
that we forget that without that work, how, I mean, how, none of the rest of society could function. There is no capitalism without the exploitation of generally women's care work. So I think, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I, it's something I want to think about a bit more, to be honest. Thank you so much for joining us, Sahima. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for the hard but really good questions. I'm definitely going to go think more about them. I think we feel very distant from the government in general. Like, um, I don't feel... Um, I know what really what really what they're doing. Um, I don't feel I can't say I feel cared for by the government. I don't know. Um, they're doing their part, but I don't really feel directly connected to the government. And you know, I feel that they um, just bringing in new legislation all the time. And, uh, I don't think that they really take our opinions into account as much as they can. Like I was saying about the care that the community gives, um, I would like to see more of that com the, the care that they give to the people because that's what they need. You know, you had this you had this question about what they imagine a future to look like where we are all cared. Because I was thinking about that one. So for that one, I was saying. Uh, would look like um, there would be no homelessness, so no rough sleeping. Everyone feeling, uh, everyone being friendly and smiling and being happy. No competition. Um, everyone feeling equal, making attempts to help each other. Um, everyone's rights should be met. No one would go hungry. Everyone would be happier greeting each other. Carers' roles will be respected and supported. It will be tranquil, so there'll be street parties and everyone can participate. Everyone will have to in feel inclusive in the society. Uh, so helping anyone who needs help. Um, the elderly and disabled and vulnerable people would be cared for. Homes and hospices uh, would have regular visitors. There'll be more befriending and support and counselling will be freely available. That's it. Thank you for listening. We hope that the series provokes and inspires change so that we can work together to act upon making spaces safer for more people, preventing harm and opening up pathways to multiple avenues of physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual health. Ask yourself how sport and education projects can also be spaces that imagine and take steps to create better futures and improve access to health for marginalised communities. Why is health political and what have we learned from lockdown and the pandemic? What do we need to put in place for ourselves and each other to make sure everyone is cared for as best as possible? Mm -hmm.